Hello and welcome to The Kenyanist, a show where we seek a deeper and broader understanding of the social and political issues that Kenyans face. My name is Kamau Eduri. Domestic workers in Kenya and indeed elsewhere around the world are often underpaid and undervalued. Yet domestic workers have over the years proved to be an essential part of our everyday lives. They look after our homes, clean our spaces, prepare our meals, look after our children. Simply put, they take care of us. They make our lives possible. Despite their meaningful contribution to the economy and indeed to our well-being, domestic workers in Kenya endure some of the harshest working conditions. And while we have rightfully focused on the dire and serious experiences of Kenyans working as domestic workers in the Middle East, it is also important for us to focus on what happens at home in Kenya. Domestic workers are underpaid, they are often denied membership to unions and are at times mistreated by their employers. They often lack common work benefits that most other workers enjoy, such as leave days, health insurance, and pensions. There was a recent survey actually that found that domestic workers in Kenya are earning about 8,522 shillings per month, which is well below the government set minimum wage of about 14,000. Presently, there are efforts by domestic workers to pursue better conditions in their work and to pursue freedom and to help us understand the context and the push for dignified work for domestic workers. I am glad to be joined today by Mumbi Kanyogo, a Kenyan feminist scholar based in Nairobi, who has written on the efforts by domestic workers to resist exploitation and to pursue dignified work. Hi, Mombi, and welcome to The Kenyanist. Thank you, Kamal. I'm really happy to be here, and I'm excited for our conversation. Our conversation today is based on, on an article you published on this very topic, which listeners can find on the show notes. There's a sentence that I found very powerful and compelling. You say that Nairobi's existence is partly forged by the extraction of labor, time, and life from its poorest. Tell us what you mean by this. So when I was writing that particular sentence, I was thinking in conversation with the work of Dr. Leonard Sommer. So she is, I think, at Makerere right now, but she writes a lot about how the care work that a lot of Kenya's poorest do in order to sort of raise the workers who essentially do the work that maintains the state, that maintains private businesses, but they do it for free, essentially, not only in terms of the labor that the actual labor of taking care of kids, so the, the cooking, the cleaning, the you know, taking care of healthcare concerns, essentially maintaining the wellness, the welfare of people who are essentially Kenya's labor force, but they do it for free and without the support of the state. So when I was thinking about that, when I was thinking about how Nairobi's put together and part through extraction from the poorest, I'm thinking a lot about how it's not work that's that's taken seriously or work that's even compensated or even supported. And so in a way, it's invisibilized. So I was thinking a lot about how it's work that we don't take account of, we don't account for, and yet it's the work that maintains people's lives and enables us to even have the city that we do. And also because work that happens in the household, essentially, this reproductive labor, so to, to, to define it as such, is work that is often 
invisible. And that's part of the reasons why it becomes undervalued because it's not considered to be to be work or meaningful work that requires to be compensated for. I would just add that it's because it's internalized within the family. And there's a way that it's interesting because we're t- speaking about this in this moment where politicians are talking about family, the family unit, you know, using the sort of like rhetoric and discourse that's used by right wingers in the West. And the family is this unit that's used, traditionally it's used to as a vehicle for accumulation. That's essentially what it's supposed to be used for. But in a way, the way Lena Soma is talking about, the way other feminist political economists are talking about it on the continent and elsewhere, is that it internalizes the reproductive labor that hasn't really even been a question within public discourse. You know, it's a thing that we take for granted. In addition to like what you said about it being invisibilized, it's not even a question that we talk about in the public because it's already assumed that it will be taken up by domestic workers. So we've never really had a debate about what child childcare might look like or what it might look like when it's a public service or something that's subsidized on a greater scale. We are either, people are either taking it up and internalizing it within the family unit or like we're talking about today with domestic work, it's a private transaction between you and a service provider. This is so interesting. I don't usually like to do, to draw the comparisons between Kenya and other countries, especially not in the West. But this is so important what you've just said because I have children of of my own. We are raising two two young boys, and we live in Scotland. There's a whole debate in this in this country, not just in Scotland but in the United Kingdom, about childcare. And it is, it's one of the things that has actually been discussed by the Chancellor of the Exchequer, the equivalent of our, of our Cabinet Secretary for, for the Treasury, in terms of what kind of things the government will have to do in order to make it possible for people to afford childcare so that especially women who are often burdened with the work of looking after children and doing that reproductive work at home are able to to get back into the workforce as the government is trying to get the economy to recover following, of course, Brexit and Corona. Coming back to the Kenyan context and thinking about, about your analysis, you draw a very good trajectory of this and, and, and trace back the emergence of domestic work to the colonial period. And you note how the domestic work offered by African people made life possible for the settler. Could you give us a sense of how domestic work unfolded during that period? So what happens is that when settlers come to Kenya, they don't know how to live in this context. They don't have automated or, or you know homes that are getting to be automated during that period. They don't necessarily know how to deal with the climate. When they come, the homes that they find are not really like what they know at home or structures that indigenous people are using at the time, which are completely different from what they're used to. So now the question emerges really out of necessity. How can we get people that can sort of enable us to live in this place that we don't know how to live in? So the first domestic workers are like guides and translators, that the people who are helping them traverse or navigate through different pathways on their various journeys or, you know, what they were calling about it as explorations, um, that the people who are lighting fires for them in order to 
heat water when they need to take a bath out in you know they don't really have homes at the time they're also the people who are carrying their bags as they're traveling to wherever it is that they're going to so it emerges that way if you even read the sort of correspondence that um settlers the early settlers are having with people back in the in britain they're speaking a lot about how and giving a guidance that when you get to Kenya, you, the first thing that you need to look for, even before you think about a home or even uh, like, you know, pots or pans, is that you need to think about a domestic worker. You need to think about getting someone who will enable you to live your life um, and show you what it is like to live during um in this new environment. I think it's also really important to think about it at that level because in the piece, I kind of allude to it, but a really big part of the settler colonial process or the settler colonial project is to really disappear indigenous people and to make it look as if settlers are completely self-sufficient because how else do you produce a myth about indigeneity? You know, if you're not talking about yourself as completely self-sufficient, so part of why it's so invisible and now is that settlers did not talk about their domestic workers. They, they would hide them from plain view. So even when they're talking about domestic workers and the work that they're doing, they're, doing, they're not talking about it as labor. They kind of talk about it as some sort of magic. You'll hear them talking about, oh, you know, this person magically created a fire, but they're not talking about the labor of what it meant to look for the for the firewood, what it meant to look for the actual food that you're eating. It's a magical process that you kind of hide the processes that happen behind it. They depend on domestic workers for so much, but in order to establish the settler colonial project, a big part of that is invisibilizing the work that domestic workers do. That's very interesting. And one of the examples I remember that really brings that point home is, is where you say that domestic workers were also expected to remember the favorite dishes of their employer's friends so that when they came home, they knew exactly what to prepare. I found that quite profound because it also draws links to the conversations that are emerging from a lot of feminist economics at the moment and sociology, which is the idea that even the work of remembering is also labor. The way that this gets hidden from view means that we are completely, as you, you say in your paper, completely undervaluing the contribution that these people are, are making to the, to, the, to the household. But the other thing which, moving on from that, is despite the centrality of these people in making this life for settlers possible, the colonialists still see them as requiring control and surveillance, right? Which is which is another core theme that, that you bring out in your paper. And you talk quite a lot about the Red Book and what we can learn from that. Can you explain this a bit for people who may not be fully familiar with how this control of labor unfolded in the colonial times, how these workers were surveilled and controlled by, by the colonial regime? So we all know about the Kipande. So that was an ordinance that was legislated in around 1915. And it was a law that required Africans to carry around a book that had biometric data, information about people's ethnicity, race, and then also where they came from. And 
all the workers who were migrating from their homes to the urban settlers to work in factories in the homes compounds of of settlers were required to have that kipande but about a bit over a decade later they legislated another law called the registration of domestic servants ordinance so that's around 1929 and basically that emerges because settlers are becoming a bit uncomfortable with the fact that you know they're coming to terms with the fact that although they are racist although they have sort of panics about black people and black men in, in particular they now start to realize and it dawns on them that there's this contradiction that exists in their home that people that they think of as 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 a threat are actually living in their homes they're not just out there on the streets in their factories in the company they're actually in their homes around their children around all their worldly possessions so they think about the kipande as something that's insufficient it doesn't have enough information for them to be able to protect themselves and to navigate this contradiction that you know that has emerged settlers demand this registration of domestic service ordinance so the way that the settlers uh, settler government is talking about it is that it's a way for africans to get referrals and basically i guess broaden their horizons in terms of the type of employment that they can get and the difference between this idea so you know colloquially known as the red book and the kipande is that the kipande has like biometric data but now the red book has some additions it has it requires that when a domestic worker leaves their previous place of employment that their employer records information about their work ethic what you know whether they enjoyed the, their service um, and then also information about their salary previously and other benefits that they got so you can see there's a conflict between how the settler government is thinking about it and how the settlers are thinking about it the settler government is framing it as protection for domestic workers but the settlers are thinking about themselves but ultimately it comes down to the fact that the settlers need a way in order to sort of differentiate between who they think of as good natives and who they think of as people who are just flat out criminals but the lines are sort of that kind of blood because ultimately uh even as they are trying to differentiate between the two what actually gets documented in the red book is very blurry you'll see that it can range from things as as mundane as you know this this domestic worker you know is good at cooking this particular meal to another on the other range um this domestic worker is not worth the 60 shillings i'm paying them so it really ranges in terms of what anyone can write in that which means that it has really extreme consequences for your ability to gain work you don't know what you're going to get when your employer writes for you and you have no say in terms of what's documented there yet it's a requirement in order for you to get to work the other thing that they're trying to surveil at the time is crime so settlers were you know especially in Kenya were in depth, like in perpetual anxiety anxious about the fact that there are extremely small settler population in re- relative to like the african population and then they also magnify very you know small crimes into sort of like systemic issues so around the time that the adso is legislated 
there was a couple of supposed, it's not even clear whether it actually happened, supposed cases of sexual violence against settlers. So between domestic, you know, domestic workers and settlers, there are three isolated cases, but they become magnified into, they create the public will that's required in order to get this idea so legislated. They're also trying to control for crime and then also surveil for you know contagion because they're scared of the fact that there's people in their homes who might have venereal disease they were very very nervous about venereal disease so all these reasons um all these factors sort of congeal into a campaign a really concerted campaign for this idea so to pass and it does and then it continues up until right before the emergency period where they try to ramp it up again as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking about Louis White's book, Comforts of Home, which presents history of, of, of prostitution in colonial Nairobi and seeing how there are so many parallels there between the idea of what labor is and what gets thought of as labor, who is thought of deserving to be given an opportunity to sell their labor, especially to the settlers, but then even to the African population, especially the men who are being employed in, in, in factories and in businesses in the city. The obsession with questions of morality and concerns about, about venereal diseases. And I think there's so much that we can actually draw upon from those kinds of, of, of histories that would actually be very interesting to learn a bit more more from. We have now talked about the history of domestic work and domestic workers in Kenya and, and looked at the colonial period. And now we are going to look at what's happening in the contemporary period. One of the things that really emerges very strongly from your paper is how the legacy of colonialism has continued to shape the reality of domestic work in present-day Kenya. I would want us to start by looking at that point of which are the ways, the main ways you see the reality of domestic workers and domestic work in Kenya today, mirroring the experiences of domestic work and domestic workers in the colonial era. I'd say the first way is the, the under-regulation of domestic work. So when we're talking about the history of domestic work during the colonial period, we talked about the RDSO and the type of, you know, surveillance. So, you know, the overhandedness that the colonial settlers had in, in terms of regulating domestic work. But when you come to the contemporary period, that kind of is turned on its head. And now you see complete unregulation, underregulation. And the similarities are is that both these, I would think of as policies. So even though I think neglect is a policy choice. In itself, both these um, policies, so the surveillance and then also the neglect, are sort of very employer focused. You see that ESO was created to protect settlers, but the under regulation of domestic work in the contemporary period means that it's, it's employers who get to determine the price that domestic workers are able to sell their labor at. Employers who are able to determine the kinds of Living conditions domestic workers get to live in, especially if they're living domestic workers. And many are because a lot of domestic workers don't have homes in Nairobi. They come from their rural homes and migrate here specifically for work. So you find that a lot of them have, you know, are living at the mercy of their employers 24-7. So you realize that both these policies at a government level 
leave domestic workers at the mercy of employers and how they want to regulate them and or the extent to which they'd like to regulate or follow the law. That's the first similarity I see. So the second similarity that I would speak about is just at the level of the relationship that domestic workers have with their employers. So under capitalism, we are all sort of self-responsible for what happens within our homes. Because, for example, we all have to go to work and we spend a majority of our lives doing work, which leaves very little time for us to do the sort of care labor that enables us to live through our lives. It's distinguished at the level of class. There are people who don't really have that option. And then there's people with a bit more disposable income who are able to make the choice to outsource the labor of making their homes and taking care of themselves in order for them to have more time in order to work. The net sort of benefits for employers continue. And it means that there is sort of a line of exploitation, but also income and wealth accumulation that domestic workers are not able to have access to because, you know, they take on labor work, uh, care work twice, and it's either undervalued or completely unpaid. The work of taking care of their own families because they don't have the option to outsource. And then also the work of taking care of their employer's family, which is completely not only invisibilized, but completely undervalued and therefore undercompensated. So that line continues into the present. Then I would say the other similarity is also just the rampant abuse. Domestic workers during the colonial period were one of the most abused classes of workers because violence was sort of a technology that settlers used in order to maintain that contradiction in their homes. There was no way for them to sort of maintain these people who they thought about as a threat in their homes if they weren't also using violence as a way to sort of pacify that threat. So they were excessively violent. And it was even known throughout the sort of settler world. So if you think about Zimbabwe, South Africa, Kenyan settlers were notoriously violent. And that violence kind of continues into the present day. Very little is talked about within sort of mainstream press about domestic workers' actual like living conditions and the type of organizing that they do. But the, what does come through, and, and oftentimes when you do find domestic workers spoken about in the papers, is cases of domestic workers being beaten, being um, sexually abused. Often you'll see when domestic workers are spoken about, that's what's spoken about. And so there's lots of cases of harm that domestic workers are subjected to. I think the rates are over 50% of domestic workers have experienced some level of physical or sexual violence. It's a very high rate. So I'd say that is another similarity that continues until today. The rider to that is that... We also see cases where domestic workers are also the perpetrators of harm, especially towards and against and against children. And I think these are not easy conversations to have either way, but there's a sense in which the focus and, and perhaps not unjustified on the cases where domestic workers have perpetrated abuse tend to overwhelm and overshadow the cases where the domestic workers are themselves the subject of abuse. We've seen cases where domestic workers have subjected children to sexual abuse. We have had cases where, I don't know whether there's there's many verified cases, where they have run away with children or where they have harmed children to the extent of children losing their lives. My frustration with this is that we, as a society, for some reason, we are not really keen on having 
nuanced discussions about abuse and violence, which means that we get caught up in the hype of the moment of the particular case and completely fail to examine the dynamics more broadly after so one, one case has hit the headlines, you know, so to speak, which, which frustrates me to, to know. And, and that means that then we don't have a picture of the kind of situations that, that people are, engaged, are in in the households, even as they provide labor. And I do remember one of my friends telling me many years ago, this is, was long before we had children, and, and she said to me, you also have to think about what might have been the situation in that context for that kind of abuse to emerge. But because we don't examine that, we really have no sense of what's of what exactly is happening within within those households. It's that case of thinking about things at an individualized scale and not really thinking about the conditions that produce these circumstances and how the two might be intertwined as you've spoken about. Another thing that, that you really, really emphasize here, and, and, and this links quite well with the conversation we will eventually have about efforts of the of domestic workers to organize, is relating to the question of wage theft. It's one of those things where you read it and you know, I've had this so many times. You know, domestic workers who've been chased away by their employer in the middle of the night and haven't been compensated. People who've gone for months without being paid. Of course, you highlight what has happened during the COVID-19 pandemic. And every so often we then get this, again, not thinking in any structured or organized way. Every so often we get this like a celebrity who comes up and says, oh, domestic workers have to be paid 10,000 shillings and this creates an uproar. For some reason, we fight over it for like two or three days. And then magically, as as we often do as a society, we move on to some other discussion. Maybe there's a, there's a huge celebrity wedding or whatever. We get very easily distracted, you know? I would like for you to give us in a sense, what you think the major contours of this debate around wage theft and compensation for domestic workers vis-a-vis the protection of labor protections for minimum wage and so on, what do you see as the major contours of that discourse? So for me, I'd say that it has two aspects. Number one is thinking about what employers can afford on one end. And then number two is really thinking about what the value is of domestic work to people's lives and the fact that people don't think really intentionally about that value. So the point about what employers are able to afford, and I'll also kind of refer to some ideas that Ruth Kagame, she is an organizer with the main domestic worker union. So she's the main organizer there. Um, And she had some insights about that. So I'll also refer to that. So the biggest issue, and even when those conversations come up in public and they're initiated by a celebrity, the biggest answer that will always come to the fore is the fact that many employers cannot afford the minimum wage or at least the monthly minimum wage that is stipulated within the various laws that we have. It differs between rural areas and urban areas. And then it also differs, I think, across peri-urban and urban. There's very many different distinctions. But I think within Nairobi, the latest was around 15,000. And the idea is that 
most employers, particularly middle-class employers, cannot afford that amount. But what Ruth Kagame was saying was that although people might say they can't afford 15,000, then you need to limit the number of hours. There's this question of the fact that people need to limit the number of hours that they're expecting domestic workers to work. Because what you'll find is domestic workers are not only working a full day on a low uh, income, but you'll find that they are working way over the limits, up to 16 to 18 hour days, and not even being paid the minimum wage. So the question emerges is, if you are not able to afford it, then you need to be more realistic about the kinds of hours that you're expecting domestic workers to do, and also the types of duties that you're expecting them to do. Because a big issue with this issue of wage theft is the fact that employers are intentionally vague about the types of work they're expecting domestic workers to do, which means that it's sort of like, it's sort of like, leaves the door open for for their roles to shift over time even though you know the domestic workers are not given the opportunity to renegotiate at the level of so that's one aspect then i would go into the second aspect is the fact that we solely solely undervalue what it means for us to have domestic workers in our homes when i was talking to this economist when i was writing that piece he asked this question was and what would middle class and upper class Kenyans lose if they were the ones who are doing these domestic workers? So what is the opportunity cost of not having a domestic worker? We need to think about it, not just in terms of money, but in terms of the time that would be lost. But we don't think about it in that term. What would it mean in terms of what your day looks like when you get from home? What would your weekends look like? What would your evenings look like? Would you even be able to have a nine to five if you didn't have a domestic worker in your home? And then what would that mean for your future prospects? You know, if you're thinking about a job as a, a way for social mobility or, or for a type of wealth accumulation. So we don't think about it at that level. We, you know, the, the conversation continues to rotate around this. It's even arbitrary how the number of 15,000 bob was come, come to. It kind of rotates around this very reductive conversation about a minimum wage. But we should really be thinking about it at the level of an opportunity cost, which I think will create an opening for us to think about this as a public service that actually shouldn't be something that's negotiated at a private level, but is something that we're thinking of as providing at a public level. I think when we think about it at that level, it now becomes a policy conversation. You said earlier that you think about neglect as a policy. And and I was I was gonna say, of course, when you think about public policy, we talk about policy as as the things that the government chooses to do or not to do, right? And and in your paper, you say that the exploitation of domestic workers is enabled by the state through its institutional neglect of domestic workers. We've already talked quite a lot about what's happening in the private sphere, in, in the household. But now I would want us to move out of the home and go towards to the broader public sphere and talk about how does this neglect from the state manifest in the case of domestic workers? The way it comes up the most is the fact that, you know, in Kenya, it's not a question of legislation or the fact or the, the existence of laws. There are laws that regulate domestic workers. There's also international laws. So for example, there's this convention with the International Labor Organization called Convention 189. 
and domestic workers have been organizing for it to for the government to ratify it and basically it has regulations about the fact that you know domestic work needs to have like a minimum wage which it does in Kenya it needs to be regulated in terms of the types of hours domestic workers are asked for so basically it restates a lot of the labor protections that the rest of us as workers have it sort of aligns with other things that exist within Kenyan law for domestic workers it's not a question of the lack of law but the issue has been the lack of will or political will to actually enforce these laws a big thing that the government will say to towards domestic worker organizers and the union is the fact that you know protections for domestic workers are unenforceable one thing that they've been encouraging them to do is to do spot checks if we're thinking about the home as not just a home but also a workplace then it also needs to be inspected in the same way another workplace might be inspected and there's ways that the government could be creative around this but they have completely refused to creatively explore not just what domestic workers are saying but the fact that there's actual laws that they need to enforce what they'll say to domestic workers when they're organizing around these things and trying to demand that their rights are respected and enforced is the fact that the laws are already there and because they're there it's the employers who should be enforcing them they say that that's where their role stops so when i say institutional neglect i mean that they've taken this intentional approach to not enforcing it and instead leaving it up to a negotiation between domestic workers and their employers with them fully knowing that there's a power dynamic there that means that domestic workers cannot fairly negotiate for themselves so that's one aspect of this institu- institutional neglect the other thing that i'd say creates this institutional neglect is the fact that dom- that the state does not even allow or enforce the ability for domestic workers to protect themselves if they're saying that their role ends at the space of policy making and enforcement is the re- responsibility of domestic workers and employers they don't even enforce the right of association for domestic workers so in the piece i talk a lot about tam this domestic work organizer who's within the the main union and she's talking about the types of intimidation she has to deal with in order to organize domestic workers in the estate that she's in and it's something that they report regularly but even at that level the government will not intervene so you know it, it's just left domestic workers in this situation where they have to go to incredible lengths to even protect the most basic of rights which the rest of us all have an interesting power dynamic between ourselves and our employers but even worse when you're working in a in a workplace that's also someone's home there's a types of freedom that people imagine that they have because it is their home that you know people don't imagine in other workplaces thanks mumbi this has been a fascinating conversation and and very illuminating i love the way you're bringing out the various dimensions and angles that we can think about this issue from now moving on to how the domestic workers in Kenya are pursuing dignified work you and you have already mentioned so far you talk about the national domestic workers council which is part of the Kenya union of domestic hotels educational institutions hospitals and allied workers which we call kudeha union i only became aware of this union 
many years ago because I worked in a school in Kenya. That's how I first encountered it, you know, which is part of the Central Organization of Trade Unions, KOTU. We can have a whole conversation about the politics of trade unions in Kenya, but I'm going to pack that conversation for another day. But nonetheless, a very important one that, that, that we do need to have. Tell us a bit more about how these domestic workers are organizing and what they are after in this effort. Kodeha emerges during the colonial period. So it emerges really right before the emergency period and right before the general strike. Right before, so 1950, right before the emergency. During that period, actually, what they're kind of demanding is things like, you know, a better wage. Also, they're trying to get rid of that RDSO, that Red Book. Even in their own analysis, they, they think about it as a surveillance tool. And they've been able to see the effects that it's had on their capacity to actually get work. So they want it gone. And then also they want access to being able to let their come with their families to their homes because then at the time, as it is now, it's up to the employers, which means that they have to maintain themselves in Nairobi and then also maintain their families' homes. So there was a whole thing around that. And it's interesting because today they're kind of organizing around the same thing. One really big demand of the domestic worker union is really around the government ratified that Convention 189 with the ILO. They see it as a really important step to their rights being respected and also gives them an opportunity to be able to hold them accountable at an international level, which they're not able to do now. The other things that they're organizing around is also the right to association. A really big issue for them is the fact that a lot of domestic workers do not know about the existence of a union that represents them. When they hear about it, this is what I was told by Ruth, is that they think about it as a circle. They don't know that it's there. One, they don't have to pay necessarily. I mean, they have to pay dues, but they don't have to, you know, have a monthly investment that they, a large one at that, that, that they are putting into this a credit union. Really big part of their work is making sure that people are able to hear that there's a union and to know what it is and what the stakes are for actually joining it. So, you know, part of it is at the level of communications, being able to ensure that the masses of domestic workers know about it. But the other part of it is a confrontation with employers, because a lot of them are quite, once they hear that there's a union and that they hear that there's an organizer who's organizing the domestic workers they're employing, a lot of hostility comes up because, of course, you as employer know that the conditions that you're creating and then also how much you're paying is going to be brought up as a question. And one thing that they do for their workers a lot is really conflict resolution. So if a domestic worker has been thrown out of the, you know, the home at night, we're talking about those cases. If a domestic worker has had their wages stolen as per the contract that existed between them and their employer, oftentimes they will try to resolve it. Another thing that they do is a lot of political education on the rights that domestic workers have, um, and also, you know, basic education around sexual violence, physical violence, and the various institutions that they can call on to protect them if they find themselves in situations where they're being abused. I'd say the other thing that is controversial and we can speak about is, if we think about even this conversation around migrant workers going to the Gulf, a really big remedy that's sort of been 
at the top of the discussion. So when the government was asked, so why are you not intervening in the sort of really brutal conditions that domestic workers are being forced to live and work in in the Gulf, their answer was that domestic workers don't have the right qualifications or they're not up to speed in terms of training. And so that's the reason that they are being abused. A really big push by the union and then also other sort of agencies and training centers within Nairobi domestic or Kenya domestically is for domestic workers to be trained in housekeeping in child minding they believe that a really big step towards securing their rights is to professionalize domestic work they see things like qualification as a really big step to it becoming respected and more valued work so i think those are the types of things that they've been organizing around that question of formalization is an is an interesting one. You highlight this idea of wanting to convert this the engagement between employers and the employees through written contracts as a form of, of formalizing this engagement. So I'd like to think about this, but then also juxtapose it with what you were saying earlier about the resistance that the domestic workers are getting from the employers and think about how possible, how practicable is this idea? What problems will it solve? What problems is it likely to create as they, they pursue more formalization as a way of pursuing dignified work? At one level, I see it as sort of like a really genuine pursuit because the idea is that if we're not moralizing the, I, the transaction of domestic work and you know people's choices, but we're not thinking about it at a moral level. There are people who, given any choice, all the choices, they would still want to provide some level of care work or they'd want to, this is a career path that they'd like to, to take. So why not make it so that everybody has the sort of skills in order to do their work at the highest level? I think that's really important to, to, to first of all say before we get into what it can and cannot do. It's important to think about it as it's work that many people would still take up if given the choice. But the other issue with it is that it puts the onus of protection and regulation on domestic workers themselves. What we're saying is that not only domestic, are domestic workers are workers in this situation, they are also supposed to play the role of government in this situation. So you see the government outsourcing its responsibilities again to people who are vulnerable in this situation. But what it does is also completely circumvent the conversation about class, about gender that make it so that people's humanity is up for debate. Because that's often what happens when these basic rights are not enforced. It's also a lot about how class and gender reshape who we consider as human. And Domestic workers are not, or at least the treatment of domestic workers does not indicate that people who have particular like class positions do not think of them as human in that way. So that's one limitation of it. The other limitation of it is that it means that the conversation continues to be at the level of supply and demand. It doesn't really answer this question or, or, or even raise this question of who is responsible for providing care work within our society and then who is involved in this conversation should it just be domestic workers and their employers or should this also be a question that not only includes the state but also includes us having a discussion or 
even us thinking about how people, everyone's children are, are taken care of. We don't, it means that the conversation continues to be restricted to a private transaction. I like that you've drawn in the question about the humanity of domestic workers. And it's one of the most obvious things about your paper, which is titled CCP and Iwatu. We are also human beings which looks at how domestic workers in Kenya are resisting exploitation and how they are pursuing dignified work, which has been published in in the Republic. And it's been an absolute pleasure, Mumbi, to have you on The Kenyanist explaining this, this work and, and telling us more importantly about how we have to, to take broader perspectives towards the way we think about not just labor generally, but labor that's happening in the household and that is responsible for making it possible for the rest of us, especially those in the middle classes, to be able to go on with our lives while at the same time being able to keep homes and and to raise children as well. Thank you for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. That marks the end of our show today. Thank you for listening. In case you have any questions, comments, please contact us at www.thekenyanist.com. Reach us via social media using the handle at The Kenyanist. You can also contact us on the same platforms for guest and topic recommendations. We are grateful for your continued support. You can help the podcast grow by rating us wherever you get your podcast and sharing it with others who may find the topics in our discussions interesting. Until next time, goodbye.